Facebook, someone said, you know, I just really like that Tommy. He is just such a meek guy. Yeah, I, I really don't think. Anyone, anyone heard that recently? Great. Uh, what in the world does meek mean? It's not a word that we use today. So we need to do a little investigation, and I've asked some of you to help me. So let's watch this video and see if we can figure it out. kind of an experiment, right? Um, In the raw footage that we used to make this video, we heard over 20 word associations and definitions of the word meek. Here's just a short list. Mild, happy, strong, quiet, humble, shy, timid, not aggressive, non-confrontational, and reserved. And that's just a short list. After preparing this sermon, I firmly believe that meekness is one of the most misidentified and misunderstood terms in the Bible. The word rings a bell for many of us. We know it's from Scripture, uh, but we can't define it. No one interviewed for this video should feel bad about not knowing what meekness is. I've been polling people for about a month and a half, and I have yet to hear the same definition twice. But as Matthew 5, 5 indicates meekness, is important. It's an important characteristic because it's the meek that inherit the earth. When I say that meekness is one of the most misidentified terms from the Bible, what I mean by that is that we don't even understand how prevalent it is because translators have often supplied related English words because they think we'll understand them more easily. But that doesn't really help us learn what it means, does it? So, for example, did you know that meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. Huh. It's true. In his letter to the Galatians, Paul gives a list of signs that the Holy Spirit is transforming the life of a believer. Okay, if you know them, say them with me. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Didn't I just say meekness was a fruit of the Spirit? Where did it go? Here is a fact that could win you a million-dollar Bible trivia question. Ready? Store this away in your memory. Almost every single English translation of the Bible replaces the word meekness 
with gentleness in this verse. But the reality is that in Greek, these are two very different words. According to Paul, meekness is a sign that our lives are surrendered to Christ, that we're allowing God to transform our minds and our character. So if meekness is such an important thing, we better figure out what it means. When Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, he was directly quoting Psalm 3711. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, go to Psalm 37. That's our text for this morning. This is where we're going to begin to build an accurate picture and understanding of meekness. Today I'm just going to read the first 11 of 29 verses, but it's really going to follow along with the same theme after that. And I will read to you from the NRSC. Here's Psalm 37. Do not fret because of the wicked. Do not be envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so you will live in the land and enjoy security. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will make your vindication shine like the light and the justice of your cause like the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret over those who prosper in their way, over those who carry out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For the wicked shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Yet a little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look diligently for their place, they will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The psalm continues along those same lines. These words were written by King David. Here's a little helpful historical context for this psalm. We need to remember that when God called Abraham and his descendants, and when he later rescued the Hebrews from slavery in Egypt, God made a covenant with his people. Now, their inheritance for keeping this covenant with God is a promised land. Eventually, by God's leading and power, the Israelites take over and now inhabit the promised land that once belonged to a group called the Canaanites. By the time David is king, the Israelites have lived in this promised land a long time, but they've lived alongside foreigners with strange practices and those who worship many gods. This psalm shows us that neighborly relations have disintegrated. God's people are being attacked, and it sounds pretty harsh. It's the wicked, not the righteous, who are, are prospering in the promised land. Injustice is a disheartening thing to witness and experience. So David writes to encourage his people. He assures them that their suffering does not go unnoticed and that ultimately the wicked will not prosper. We didn't read this, but in verse 13 it says, The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that their day is coming. When I hear that, I think kind of like the Terminator, their day is coming. That sounds kind of ominous for the wicked, and maybe hopeful for the Israelites, but rescue doesn't exactly sound like it's coming soon. So in the meantime, David has some instructions for his people. His song can almost be broken down into a list of do's and don'ts. He tells them first, do not fret. He says this three times in the song. 
And then he tells them, trust in the Lord. He says this explicitly twice, but it seems that almost every other instruction of things to do can fall under this umbrella of trust. Up on the screen, we've put two columns. What I kind of see is the do's and don'ts from the whole psalm, all 29 verses. So the, kind of, the list on the left, the do not fret, it seems that refraining from anger, turning from wrath, and turning from evil are the picture of what it means to not fret. And kind of opposing that in a positive way is trusting in the Lord. And the uh, things that fall under this idea of trusting in the Lord is to do good, to delight in the Lord, commit your way to the Lord, be still before the Lord, hope in the Lord, spend your day under the Lord's care. David isn't giving afflicted people false hope or trite sympathy. He assures them that the wicked deserve punishment rather than prosperity. And he tells them that the wicked will perish, but he is very clear that it should not be at the hands of the Israelites. The main point of his psalm is obvious. God is the one who should and will act against injustices. God is the one who will destroy the wicked and right the wrongs done to his people. This psalm assures the Israelites that God will give them the desires of their heart. He will give them a righteous reward. He will vindicate them, uphold them, make their steps firm, and he will not forsake them. And if God's people resist personal retaliation and wait on the Lord to act, then God will give them the land as an inheritance. David refers to this inheritance seven times in the psalm. He says that this inheritance is eternal. And verse 11 says that it's the meek who inherit. From this psalm, we get a clear picture of both the context and the character of meekness. If you're following along in your sermon notes, this is where you get to fill in the blanks. Meekness is a virtue that arises in the context, context of an unjust attack. It arises in the context of an unjust attack. The meek are those who put aside retaliation and trust in the Lord's vindication. This picture of meekness is confirmed throughout the Old Testament. There are nine other psalms, many proverbs and prophets, who describe the exact same context and character of meekness. If we were to study all 19 occurrences of meekness in the Old Testament, we would learn that it is a virtue that always occurs in relation to God. While meekness certainly spills over into the way that we treat other people, primarily it's about our attitude toward God. This is evident from the list of actions that fall under trusting the Lord that we saw from Psalm 37. Let's look again at the slide. So if... Um, every single one of these actions you can see are encouraged to be done in, to, or before the Lord. There are several people from the Bible who are described of as meek. Moses is the first. If your translation sticks to the Hebrew word, even translators of the Old Testament do this, they replace meekness and meek with other words. So if they stick to the Hebrew, Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek more than all men that were on the face of the earth. Most translations here put the word humble in. They miss the point. What do we know about Moses? He was God's spokesman before Pharaoh, right? 
And sure, he was humble in many ways. After all, he didn't go up to the Israelites and say, hey, you should worship me because God appointed me as your leader. He kept a low profile. He wasn't looking for people's praise. But it's Moses' meekness on display when he goes before Pharaoh. Moses doesn't run into Pharaoh's chambers and, you know, play out his own battle strategies, does he? When Moses is mocked by Pharaoh and his message is mocked, Moses responds by trusting in God. Moses waits for God's guidance and only does what God instructs him to do before Pharaoh. Later, when they've escaped from Egypt, Moses' siblings verbally attack him for having married a foreigner. Aaron and Miriam are trying to discredit Moses and puff up their own importance. But Moses is very meek. He refrains from evil. He doesn't verbally slap them back and he doesn't seek retaliation. And then God responds. God rebukes Aaron and Miriam for reminding them that um, Moses is the only one to whom God speaks face to face. Numbers 12.9 says, The anger of the Lord burned against them. As a consequence for their actions against God's faithful servant, Miriam suddenly is afflicted with leprous sores all over her body. What did the meekest man of his time do when he saw this? Did he spit in their faces? Did he rub in their misfortunes? No. Moses refrains from evil and he does good. Moses goes to the Lord and he pleads that God would heal his sister. The same sister who was just verbally attacking him. Moses looked to the Lord to right the wrongs done to him and his people. He expected God to act on their behalf. The one time Moses fails to do this, he's denied entrance into the promised land. Do you remember that story from Numbers 20? There's this venomous confrontation going on. The Israelites, who've been wandering in a hot desert, are now camped in a place where there is no water. So, you know, we're in 120 degree heat in Arizona. Imagine that we're out camping. We don't have any provisions with us. We don't have any water. What's going to happen if we don't get water? We're going to die. So Numbers 20, 2 to 4, says the people gathered in in opposition to Moses and Aaron. They quarreled with Moses and said, why did you bring the Lord's community into the wilderness, to this terrible place? There is no water to drink. As we would expect, Moses goes and seeks God's wisdom. God tells Moses, take your staff and go speak to that rock over there and water will pour out of it. So Moses takes his staff, and he goes up to the rock. But instead of just speaking to the rock, what does he do? He strikes it twice with his staff, and water pours out. But listen to what happens in verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. When Moses deviates from God's plan, his character shifts away from meekness. His actions say that God's plan is insufficient. They reveal a lack of trust in God to to right the unjust attacks done to Moses. And so Moses will not receive the inheritance. 
So now, through positive and negative examples, we have learned that meekness is trusting in the Lord when we are under attack. The meek are those who withhold retaliation and let God be the vindicator. My grandfather worked for a newspaper called The Vindicator, and I always thought that was such a strong word. God is the vindicator. The meek are God's heirs. Throughout the Old Testament, there is this constant link between meekness and inheriting the promised land. And this is exactly what we hear from Jesus in Matthew 5, 5. Last week, I asked you to do a little work with me, to do some imagination that we are eyewitnesses to the Sermon on the Mount. And when we were doing this exercise, we asked ourselves how the beatitude was good news. Doing the same this week will certainly enhance our understanding of this beatitude. Can you imagine that when some of the Jews who heard Jesus say, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth, they may have been kind of puzzled. You know, they recognize these words. I mean, they're in their holy songbook and they recognize them from Psalm 37, but they don't get why Jesus would say it like it's news. After all, they've been living in the promised land for a long time. Some of them are probably scandalized because Jesus says a little bit later, just after the Beatitudes, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Rolled together with the Beatitude, this statement is shocking because Jesus suddenly is suggesting that something's missing. As though the Jewish inheritance remains unclaimed. But others are of the gathered Jews are probably leaning in when they hear Jesus say, blessed are the meek. Sure, their people have lived in the promised land for centuries, but peace has been elusive here. First, it was all these um, foreigners that they lived near, tempting the Israelites with their foreign gods and causing many of them to break covenant with God. Then foreign armies came from any, every direction and wounded the young Israelite monarchy, leaving it to bleed out. Next were years of civil war, and then the kingdom of Israel officially splits in two, and then eventually both of these kingdoms implode. And as the Jews wait for their promised Messiah, the king who would reign forever and make all of this right, the temple, their most sacred place, gets ransacked, and their friends and family are carted off to foreign lands. Now, the pagan Romans whose emperor is worshipped as God, they have absolute authority in the Jewish promised land. The Jews are powerless against this mighty empire. They are taxed to their teeth. They are mocked for their religious practices, and they're treated like underlings in their own land. How their souls must have cried out. This is not the way it's supposed to be. And they're right. So when Jesus echoes the famous lyric from Psalm 37, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, I imagine that many of the Jews leaned in. And then some of them have been uh, daring to believe that a greater fulfillment of God's promise was coming. They desperately yearned for God to do, to come and, and do things and right the wrongs that have been done to them by their many enemies. I imagine that many of these hopeful and desperate Jews followed Jesus around for a few more weeks. And if they did, they heard him say this, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is another one of those passages, pretty much almost every one, uh, where translators replace the word meek with gentle, even though meekness is the Greek word that Matthew chose. If you've studied the books of Deuteronomy or Hebrews lately, you know that Rest is a word that was both symbolic and sacred for the people of Israel. The promised land was often called God's rest. Now Jesus says, come to me, for I am meek, and you will find rest. And Jesus begins to shift our expectations. He, he's indicating that he is the greater fulfillment of God's promised rest. Over the next three years in his ministry throughout this country, Jesus travels everywhere, and he's in this land, remember, that's ruled by a foreign emperor, controlled by a Roman governor, and, and you know, patrolled by mighty centurions. And as if the Jewish plight wasn't bad enough, many of their spiritual leaders are too busy pandering to the Roman authorities to bring hope to their people. When Jesus preached the good news about the coming kingdom of God that would have no end, when his words and his actions proclaimed him to be the Son of God, the Messiah and heir, he insulted, irritated, and threatened the powers that be. Jesus' message of hope for oppressed, disheartened people led to public ridicule, murder plots, and attempted stonings. Jesus knew what it was to suffer an unjust attack. One time when Jesus and his disciples are approaching Jerusalem, he sends two of the disciples ahead of them, and he tells them to collect a donkey and a colt. On these, he would ride into the capital city. And then he quotes the prophet Zechariah by saying, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, meek and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the third and final appearance of the word meek in the Gospels. Do you catch the subtext? It's everywhere here. Here is Jesus heading toward a city where all of his enemies live, where they're waiting to trap and kill him. He's riding straight, straight into a den of vipers. Instead of leading with a show of strength by choosing an intimidating war horse, instead of confronting power with power, Jesus chooses to confront power with meekness. He rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. It's a pack animal. It's made to carry heavy burdens. Logic which many of us have, and, you know, the survival instincts that are natural to being humans. You know, if we were Jesus, all of these things are screaming, go the other way, turn around. But Jesus, meek Jesus, headed straight down the path his father paved. He rode meekly toward accusations, trial, and people calling for his blood, toward flogging, exposure, and crucifixion, which was the death of a criminal. He did all of this, trusting that his father's plan would vindicate. 
Jesus' ride on a donkey we call the triumphal entry. But we can only call it that in hindsight because we know the end of the story, right? A few weeks after Jesus meekly enters Jerusalem on a donkey, he is tried, convicted, and crucified in a place called Golgotha. With some of his last vaporous breaths, meek Jesus prays for his accusers. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Jesus faced the greatest unjust attack in history. There was no humiliation or suffering worse than crucifixion and no threat greater than death. As God's son, Jesus had the power within him to overcome his enemies. We know this. But as God's meek son, Jesus set aside retaliation and power and trusted in God's plan to the very end. Nailed to a cross by his enemies, Jesus calls out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. God's good plan was Jesus' death. By God's act of power, death is defeated and Jesus is vindicated. Jesus rose to live and walk the earth again with his disciples, and then he ascended to heaven to reign with God. Suddenly, human history has a new direction. Where once there was a single road called life, which led only to death, now there the path is split. Now there is a junction called redemption, and from it a second road called belief leads to eternal life in the kingdom of God. Through Jesus, all who believe are heirs of the same inheritance that Christ received. Listen to this confirmation that Paul gives in Romans 8, 16, and 17. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. As a child, uh, I was a little naughty. I had two older brothers. And one year I um, told my brother Brandon what he was getting for his birthday. And he was so angry with me that he punched me in the stomach. And I'm outraged, and I'm hurting, and I can barely breathe, but with, with little air I could get into my lungs, I wind up for a huge sock to his stomach. And that left him stooped over and breathless. So picture us, we're both like, oh, you know, and you can't breathe. My mom comes into the room, and she's like, what's going on? But we are too breathless with pain to answer her. Now, we have the strength because as brothers and sisters do, we probably just would have kept pounding on each other until we both dropped to the ground, bloody and broken. To me, this is a fantastic picture of our culture and the consequences of having our minds shaped by the world. Meekness is a fruit of the Spirit, and in my opinion, it is one of the most difficult to cultivate. We live in a little kingdom where being right is more important than being kind. 
and where we justify retaliation by calling it self-defense. We've been raised in and subconsciously shaped by this kingdom that sends constant messages opposed to meekness. Maybe you've heard these. Don't get mad. Get even. Get even. If they take advantage of you, screw their pants off. You know, if um, she insults you face to face, go tell one of her dirty face secrets on Facebook. Even sweet Carrie Underwood who thanks her Savior Jesus every time she wins another country music award, has a song that glorifies vandalizing the car of a man who cheats on his girlfriend. This breakout single called Before He Cheats made her millions and sold more copies than her smash hit Jesus Takes the Wheel. How in the world are we supposed to put aside retaliation And trust in the Lord's vindication when we've been shaped by a self-idolizing culture. This is the part of the sermon where the pastor gives you steps. (laughs) Where they give you a few practical suggestions or steps to become meek. Well, I may be a pastor, but I am an infant when it comes to being meek. All I can do is point you back to scripture, and that is much better than anything I can come up with. Remember, Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Here, I think, is the birthplace of meekness. Come to Jesus. Learn from Jesus. Take his yoke upon you. A yoke is a single long piece of wood that farmers use to harness together the necks of two animals, usually oxen. When they were harnessed together, these animals had the strength to plow even dry, packed desert earth. I read that farmers yoke together seasoned oxen with green oxen so the young can learn the way from the mature. In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul warns, do not be yoked with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Contrary to popular interpretation and perhaps misapplication, Paul was not talking about marriage here, but that's usually where we hear it used. Paul is writing to a church who is in danger of falling away from the faith because of the seductive idolatry of unbelievers. Paired together with Jesus' words, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. These passages give us new direction. We cannot make ourselves suddenly meek like we could become suddenly rich when we win the lottery. We don't have the smarts or the strength to do this. We have to rely on Jesus to slowly transform us. Transformation begins when we throw off the yoke of our culture that glorifies retaliation and worships self. Transformation happens when we harness ourselves to Jesus and follow his lead when we allow scripture to till the soil of our souls. If we share a yoke with Jesus, 
He will teach us how to resist retaliation, to turn away from anger and evil when people attack us. Only a crucified king can teach us how to live meekly, to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But if we take on his yoke, our burdens fall away, and our inheritance is as vast as the earth. Our inheritance is abundant, eternal life in the kingdom of God. A joy-filled, carefree eternity with the maker of heaven and earth. Blessed are the meek. This is a big challenge for us. This is a lot to think about. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and offer him a few moments of silence where you can speak out the things that you're thinking of to the Lord. And then I will close us. Lord, we offer time of silence to listen to you and to speak what we have learned from you. God, I thank you that you had a plan. I thank you that you love your people and that you will do anything to keep them, to protect them, to have them inherit eternal life, to live with you in eternity. We thank you for this plan of sending Jesus, who set aside his power and set aside overtaking his enemies with his power and set aside retaliation so that your plan could be carried out. This is a big plan, far bigger and bolder and more imaginative than we could have ever dreamed. God, we want to learn from Jesus what it means to be meek. I want to put down all of this anger and malice and these nasty words that I have toward people that attack me. But I cannot do that because I have been shaped by the world. God, I need to be yoked with Jesus. We need to be harnessed to him so he can show us the way. And I pray that you would begin this act of transformation. I pray for all that are gathered here, that they would open the door to allowing space for you to transform us, to show us a better way to live in the world. Thank you that you will do this. Amen.